Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, the text is right there in the order of worship. Um, if you'll give me just a little, uh, indulge me for just a minute. I, we make a concerted effort not to do announcements during the worship service because, uh, well, I've been in services of churches, that some do, some don't, but sometimes it's, it, uh, it, it can be frustrating to say, okay, now stop worshiping for a little bit, and we're going to do a bulletin board, and then start back. So we just try to do that on the front end and keep going. But um, if I can make an exception, just because some people have trickled in since we began, and we know who you are, and we've documented it, by the way. Um, two things. One is, uh, it's just, it's, it's no small thing to be able to go... Uh, on a break from from my my job as a pastor, and just to know that things are in good hands, and and that that is because of so many people. It's everything from uh, the elders and deacons to the worship team, uh, Meg Hooper, big time, uh, but also just you doing your thing, and uh, to the point where I joked about it earlier. But uh, last Sunday we had a congregational meeting about securing this property, and I wasn't here. And I have peers in the ministry that we go, um, that's insane. And I, I, I never for a moment felt nervous about that until I heard that you, there was a motion to remove me from the position, and uh, it was narrowly struck down. But, but I, just, I just want to say thank you to, to everybody for that. And on a personal note, I wanted to say another thank you. Uh, the last four weeks, just to be honest with you, and this, I'm, this is not said in complaint, it's just an acknowledgement that uh, was a break that was not very restful um, because my dad is in very bad health and is really uh, deteriorating. But in God's providence, those four weeks were really kind of when the wheels came off. So when the wheels came off, I had the most time. Uh, but y'all have been so kind in emails and calls um, when you've caught me or caught Dana or things you've sent or brought by. So uh, from the Haybigs, we love you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to shut up so I don't cry. But uh, Revelation 2. If you're visiting, we are, this is not a, a new series. And like I said, I, this, I've been out for several weeks. But this is just something that uh, was on my heart and wanted to bring this before you. Uh, I've mentioned several times to you that I'm from the Bible Belt. I'm from Mississippi. And my whole ministerial life, I've ministered in the Bible Belt. First, uh, back in Mississippi, and then in Nashville, Tennessee, and now in Greenville. So, logged a lot of time in the Bible Belt. And there's some real upsides to that, and there's some real downsides to that. I mean, there really are some advantages that are afforded by working in a place where there is still some residue of Bible knowledge or, or familiarity with what churches do or, or what pastors do. And there are some unique challenges. Uh, one of the, the biggest challenges in the Bible Belt is when people have been exposed to something a lot and they've been around it a lot, that it can lose the shock that ought to be there. It's, it's kind of like being inoculated. You know, when you're inoculated a disease is basically injected into you, uh, maybe a potentially fatal disease, but, you know, you, you get accustomed to it enough that you can just sort of manage it and deal with it and maybe even re- 
you know, resist it, run it off, overcome it. And in the Bible Belt, you get inoculation. And one example would be this, you know, stand in front of somebody who's never heard this and say, God knows everything you ever have done or are doing or will do. And he doesn't just know it, he knows why you you do it. Now, Bible belters can hear that and say, Amen. Isn't that great? But to a, you know, an even mildly reflective person hearing that, maybe for the first time, the appropriate response might be a panic attack. And, and maybe you've been with somebody that heard that, you know, maybe you've watched someone learn basic, sort of basic Bible content for the first time, and you watch their jaw dropping, and you realize, I used to, I think I once responded that way, or, I think I, or maybe shouldn't I respond that way? But they feel a sense of it. This text is really one of these moments where the Bible belters may have the most work cut out for them. Because Jesus is, in this passage, He's coming to a local church and He's saying, I know you. And this letter that we're about to look at, it's the first of seven letters in the first part of Revelation. You know, the book of Revelation can be daunting. If you have any knowledge of it, it may make you think about there's dragons and beasts and bowls of wrath, and there's a lot of stuff that's hard to understand. That's later in the book. But in this first part, you get these seven letters, and they're letters to local churches from Jesus Christ, from the risen Christ. And in all of them, he always starts the same way. He says, I know you. And that is sobering. Now, before we read this, I want you to think about this. I just said that one reason that I can go on break and not be chewing my fingernails is because just God has blessed us with very competent people. And there are facets of this church that some of you know better than me. And there are facets of this church that I know better than you. But nobody knows downtown Presbyterian the way Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ knows details about this particular local church that even we don't see. And in this passage, it says the Spirit, through this letter, is not just talking to this particular church in Ephesus, but He's speaking to the churches. And so I want you to hear Jesus in a way that's both sobering, somewhat frightening, and then I want you to hear the profound encouragement that He's offering to Ephesus and to us. The image, and this is coming right off Revelation chapter 1, is of the risen Christ who does not look like a bearded American in a tunic. Looks like really more like um, a depiction of a God. Of course, He is. And He's shining. He does not look like a Jewish peasant. He looks like what He actually is. He looks like God the Son. He radiates light when His dear, dear close friend John sees him, he falls down like he's dead. And he's walking through these golden lampstands, and the lampstands are churches, local churches. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel, meaning 
actually to the, to the pastor, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, if we are the ones who are inoculated, would you especially help us now? If we have already checked out, we pray that you would draw us back and give us the ears we need. Lord, if this is new to us, if this is new and difficult to understand, would you grant discernment and comprehension? Would you keep your servant from confusing those who listen? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, pretty standard observation about uh, divorce, at least in the United States, it wouldn't surprise me if you find it elsewhere, is that there are windows of time in marriages that tend to be... Uh, sort of big windows of opportunity for divorce. And uh, a pretty well-known one is when parents become empty nesters. And in fact, people have written, uh, written books about just that in particular, how to really, really go on the alert if you're still married with your spouse, if your nest is about to empty because this is kind of a danger zone. Uh, my own parents... Uh, their marriage dissolved my older brother's freshman year. I don't think it was just because of the timing, but that timing did actually play out. And what those who watch this uh, will agree, and I think those who've lived through this would agree, is that the reason it's a common window is that in marriage, if you have a marriage with children, which we're assuming if we're talking about an empty nest, so much of your energy and time is the doing of family. And the doing of family is so much geared around these children. They are a gigantic focus. In fact, typically, they are the focus. And no red light really goes off if focus goes completely off of one another as husband and wife and completely onto the children. You can't, it's not like a click goes off in your head that that has happened because those, it's like a Venn diagram. You remember the Venn diagrams, the circles that overlap? Remember that from school? Where uh, being a good mom 
and being a good wife sometimes are distinct, but a bunch of it can overlap. Same with daddies and husbands. But what can happen is that once the focus leaves the house, then the husband and wife are left with one another. And what often is learned at that point is that the actions of love at some point became detached from love. The actions of love became detached from love. Maybe love first birthed them, literally, children. But the actions of love became detached from love. Now, that is a picture of what Jesus is diagnosing. He is coming to a local church. Now, I want to say this again because to me, it's, it's sobering. To all seven of these local churches, he comes and he says the same thing. I know you. I know you. And to this first church, this, and this is the same church that our book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, is written to, the church in Ephesus. He says to them, you're doing some great things, but I have a complaint. And so I want to look at these two things. I know you, what Jesus knows, and then what Jesus commands or what Jesus prescribes. What Jesus knows and what Jesus commands. First off, what does He know? And please hear this. When Jesus commends this church, He does it without... It's not with irony. It's not with sarcasm. The first thing He says He knows are the things He can commend. What does He commend? We could put it this way. Uh, Now, these words are not in the, the text. They're not in the Bible. But two words, orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, uh, right belief, right doctrine. Orthopraxy, right practice. And ideally, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Orthopraxy (laughs) comes from orthodoxy. And if you look at the letter to the Ephesians, that's the structure of it. The first part of Ephesians, orthodoxy. Second part, here's how to live in light of what is orthodox. Now, Jesus says this, you guys do believe what's true. Look look, look in uh, verse 2, the second part of verse 2. It says, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Then look down at verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know a lot about who these guys are or what they were saying, but we at least know this. There were people that came either in or around the Ephesian church, who claimed to be apostles, but somehow they were not teaching the apostolic doctrine. And the Ephesians had been taught well enough that they were on it. They were on it said, you know, nice try, but no, that's not what the Bible says. They would be thinking the Old Testament. And that's not what Paul taught us when he spent all that time with us. Nicolaitans, we don't know a lot about these guys, apparently... Uh, they were into what came to be called Gnosticism, which is a weird thing. I won't even try to explain right now. Probably said it was okay for Christians to dabble in certain practices of sexual immorality and idolatry. The Ephesians said, no dice. And Jesus commends them orthodoxy. But He also commends them that they've worked hard. Look in the first part of verse 2. It says, I know your works, your toil 
That word toil means long haul hard work. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And then listen to verse 3. You really get this. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Wouldn't you love Jesus to say that about you? I mean, wouldn't you love for Him to say, now some people work really hard for my name's sake, but then they kind of fizzle out. Some people work a long time for me, but they don't have a lot of zip in that work. But you've had a lot of zip, and you've done it for a long time. He commends them with no sarcasm, no irony. And he complains. And the complaint is why this is a famous passage. Because what's the complaint? It's verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, what does that mean? Something that we have talked about several times, and I stole this from a friend who I realized stole it from somebody else, so it's public domain. Christians tend to default into being one of three kinds. You got big head Christians, and you got big heart Christians. My friend would draw this up on a board like, you know, a giant head with a little stick body, a little stick body with a giant heart thorax, you know, and then. Uh, I've never used the word thorax in a sermon until just now. Uh, and then the big feet or big legs Christians, so a little stick top and these giant, you know, kind of balloon legs and feet. And meaning this is that some Christians would say, if you really love God, you love His truth. If you really love God, you love His truth. Sermons and doctrine and preaching are important. We ought to be discerning. We ought to be reading. And they're right. And we have to have that in the church. The big heart Christians are the ones who will say, hey, this is no good if we're a bunch of individuals running around who just kind of cattle herd into this building once a week. We have got to be connected. When the Bible talks about us being one, that's not a metaphor. We have got to be one. We've got to have meaningful relationships with one another. And when we come together for worship, we ought to be engaged. It shouldn't just be data. It should be meaningful. It should be experience. Big feet people are saying, if you love God, read the Bible. What does it say? He has shown you, O man, what's good, what the Lord requires of you. To do justly, love mercy. Let's get out there and get our hands dirty in Greenville. Let's feed the poor. Let's tutor kids. Let's serve the city in creative ways. And let's tell people about Jesus too. Let's, let's evangelize. Big head, if you love God, you love truth. Big heart people, if you love God, you love relationships. You love experience. Big feet people, if you love God, you love social justice. You love evangelism. What would Jesus say? Jesus would say, you know what? Yes and no. You can do all those things. And all those things are part of knowing me and serving me and being my people in Greenville. But the actions of love can become detached from love. In other words, 
you can love robust theology and not love me. Or love me with deep theology and shallow love. You can go tutor a kid with no resources who really needs tutoring and not love me. You can tell somebody about me and not love me. You can be really connected with one another and really into having deep relationships and not love me. There's a passage that I used to like preaching on, and now I'm nervous to preach on it anymore. When we used to meet in the Poinsett Hotel, I remember preaching on this. And I remember getting ready for this sermon. I'm going to tell you what the text is in a second. I remember getting ready for this sermon and thinking, this is the most awesome sermon for like nuking workaholics. This is going to be awesome. And now it's unsettling to me. The text is Luke chapter 10. And it's just a few verses in Luke chapter 10. It's about when Jesus is invited into the home of Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. And he's invited in for a meal. Martha invited him very graciously. She's fixing the meal. She is working on this meal. Her sister Mary is doing something that was not done in that cultural setting, she is sitting in the posture of a disciple in front of a rabbi. She is seated before Jesus, listening to him as a rabbi. She has placed herself in the posture of a disciple that was not done in first century Judea. And she's just, the verb I will use is, she is basking. And Martha has finally had enough. And she complains. She says, Lord, can you not see that I'm working... And my sister is not helping me. And, you know, that's a fun text for preaching about workaholics and how neurotic we all are. But I'm realizing more and more that if I had been in that room, I would have sided with Martha. Because I think what I would have thought is, hey, that's all well and good to soak up good stuff. I'm all about soaking up good stuff. But you know what? Shouldn't love for Jesus have feet to it? And, man, that's Martha's complaint. Yes, Love for Jesus should have feet to it and get on those feet and help me. What does Jesus say? Martha, Martha, your sister has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken from her. The meal is going to come and go. She will never lose this. This is the treasure. This is the tre- This is what life is about. And if we're honest, I think we would say, well, okay, yeah, life is about being in relationship with Him and having your sins forgiven so you can be in good relationship with Him, but then it's time to get the job done. Does Jesus call us to works? Yes, and He's going to do that again in a second. If it is harnessed to love, that he is not the means to some other end. Think about what he says elsewhere in Revelation. May be familiar to the Bible belters. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. To an audience who read Greek, he is saying, I am A and I am Z. Meaning, Do not perceive that I am A through G. 
And as A through G, I have all this power and resources to help you in all your H through Z plans. And your H through Z aspirations and the H through Z script that you have written for your own life. That A through G, Jesus will give you the resources you don't have to do your H through Z life. He says, I am A and I am Z. I'm Alpha and I'm Delta and I'm New and I'm Omicron and I'm Omega. I am life. I am not a compartment of life. Is it enough simply to sit and bask in me with all these things out there that need doing? Is it enough simply to bask in love? And Jesus would say, that is the very thing I intended. What was the call to worship this morning? This is the same call to worship, guys, that is used in Orthodox Jewish synagogues throughout the world. It's called the Shema. That's the first Hebrew word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what's the first thing that's said in the call to worship? Obey? No. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. Love Him with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does He say? And what a great place to address social ills and say, well, don't commit adultery. Although families are falling apart because of adultery. Number one choice. Love. Before we get any particulars about doing, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Here's my question. Why as a church are we doing what we're doing? Why do we want what we want? Do you want our congregation to become more diverse? Me too. Do you want our congregation to look more like Greenville? Me too. But Jesus would ask, why? Do you want it so that we can have this cool, diverse congregation and we can take a picture of it and put it on our website and get credit for it? Or do you want what the hymn was talking about? Let every tongue and tribe on this terrestrial ball to Him all majesty ascribe because we love Him. But He knows us. You want to go out there and do social justice? You want to go do mercy ministry? Great. Why do you want to do that? You want to have, a, you want to have devotions every morning? Great. You want to study my word? Great. Why do you want to study my word? So that you'll have a longer string of unbroken days where you studied my word? Or do you love me? This becomes very unsettling. So then what does he prescribe? All right, Jesus, what, what do we do? Two things. He says, first off, remember and then repent. He says, remember, in verse 5, Remember, Ephesian church, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember from where you have fallen. What does that mean? Here's the best way I know to explain it. We don't know exactly when Revelation was written. I would say the best scholarship would point to around 
hope no New Testament scholars are listening to this online, uh, around 85 to 90 A.D. or so. But if you look in another place in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, there's this great passage. It's in Acts 20. It's where the Apostle Paul, he's been working and teaching and pastoring in Ephesus to get this church really going. And it comes time to leave and go to the next city. And so he's saying goodbye to these elders, the church leaders in Ephesus. And it says that when he, after he gets through kind of giving them their marching orders and he's about to get on the boat and head out, that they cried, just wept, and they hugged, and they kissed him. Why? I mean, don't, wouldn't you say it was because these, these were first-generation Christians. Their daddies were not Sunday school teachers. Their daddies raised them that that temple to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, that's the glory of our city, that's where the action is spiritually. And this little weird, odd, earthy man named Paul came into Ephesus and said, nope, totally wrong. Totally wrong. There's one God who created the heavens and the earth. He made you. He made me. He's given all these tokens of His love. But the greatest thing He ever did was He sent His Son to do what she can't do. Because she's false and He's real. And God gave them the ability to hear that and believe it. And it must have felt like... They wouldn't have said this in the first century. It must have felt like they discovered plutonium. They must have thought, this is total power. I mean, that's a great building, you know, temple, uh, the temple to Artemis, but that is a sham. Yeah, it's a great building, but this changes people. It changes families. Think about how weird husband-wife dynamics must have been in a city given over to a fertility goddess, and Paul writes them about husbands, love your wives, the way Christ loves the church. They must have thought, this is sanity in an insane world. This is what we always wanted. And man, yeah, when they say goodbye to the guy that brought them to that, they cried. You get 30 years later, and by now, probably their kids are the ones who are the church leaders. I mean, they have already started VBS at this church, without a doubt. And, and yeah, it's great. I mean, yeah, it's still distinct. It's different than worshiping Artemis, yeah. It's great. A lot of work to do in Ephesus. And Jesus comes and says, would you please remember? I mean, some of you are here and you're not Christians, but in a way, right now, I'm talking to those who are. Do you remember what it was like at first? Do you remember when it felt like you were completely dehydrated and a Bible was like an IV? Do you remember that? Do you remember when you wanted to pray? Do you remember when speaking to Jesus was almost like this little secret love affair that you kind of couldn't believe that this was real? And Jesus comes to them and to us and says, I want you not to play that down. I want you to remember what that was like. 
because if you're jaded, you have fallen from a great height. I don't care how much you're doing for me. And then he says this, repent. Repent. And this is the good news. He says, turn to me. Um, Our church has a statement of faith called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's got this great sentence, and I probably quote it once a year, about repentance. It says this, that people shouldn't be content with a general repentance, but they should repent of their particular sins particularly. Repent of their particular sins particularly. Very British. I want to read you something that a Scottish minister named Robert McShane said that fleshes that out. He died at the ripe old age of 29. But here's something he preached before he died. He said, if Jesus comes to you and says, I know your works. Well, he wouldn't use that tone. He says, I know your works. He says, you know why you don't have to be afraid? He says, because when Jesus says to you, I know thy sin, you should say to him, I know thy sufferings. When he says to you, I know all your deficiencies, that thou hast many, then you should say to him, I know thy fullness. When he says to you, I know that thou hast got little strength, then say you to him, I know that thou hast got all strength, that thou art almighty. When he says to you, I know thy folly, then say you to him, I know thy wisdom. You don't have to be afraid to repent. It is embarrassing to be known, but the great encouragement is you can go to Jesus and say, I used to love reading this book, and it is drudgery, but not for you. It was never drudgery for you. You are a refreshment. I used to love to pray. Now it is toil. You are refreshment. And He takes us. And I want to end by saying this. Two things. Three things. Brief. The warning is, if we will not repent, He takes the lampstand. Wouldn't it be cool to go to Ephesus, where you still can go, and visit this church? You can't. The lampstand was removed. The encouragement is, he says, if you will repent, you can eat of the tree of life. You know, what if these movies like The Lightning Thief, where Percy Jackson is getting beat up by one of these gods and getting cut up with a sword, and, but because he's Poseidon's son. Is that right, Poseidon's son? Okay, if you don't learn your mythology in school, learn it from Percy Jackson. It's beside the sun. He kind of goes over to a creek and he touches the water and healing starts to rush all over him. Why are there so many stories like that? There's a stream that heals you. There's a fruit you can eat and it'll heal you because it's true. I mean, what if in the new earth, you and I are sitting by the same tree and we're looking at each other going, man, I thought that was a metaphor. It's literal. He's healed us. We have life. 
That's the encouragement. To repent is to be given access to the tree of life. And the last thing I'll say is this. The pattern I've described before holds true is that when I ask people how is summer, everyone is using the same adjective. It's crazy. How's your summer? It's crazy. Let me give you an exhortation. This day offers you Sabbath. And there is no better day for us, maybe not even before we leave this building, to turn to Jesus and say, I repent. I've abandoned my first love. Come to me. Refresh me. Draw me to yourself. Love my soul. That's what he wants. Amen. Let's pray. Draw us, Lord Jesus, to you. Draw us away even from busyness for your name's sake, if that busyness draws us away from you. Draw us from even good toil, good endurance, good doctrine, if it distracts us from you. Today, the Lord's day, give us rest in our body. Give us rest in our souls because we sat at your feet and basked. And we ask this in your name. Amen.